0: Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare & Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, Literary Director here at the Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, handpicked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our Café's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. So runs a repeated refrain in Rebecca Solnit's extraordinary new book. The roses in question were planted in a garden in Wallington, a small village not far from Buldock in the east of England. The writer in question was George Orwell. Now, Orwell must be one of the most written about, analysed, quoted, read, misread, misunderstood, copied and co-opted authors in history, which means every time a new book about him comes out, one might be forgiven for wondering if it has anything original to say, any new perspective to offer. In the case of Rebecca Solnit's Orwell's Roses, I'm happy to report that it delivers on both accounts and does so, if you'll excuse the gardening pun, in spades. It's a book about Orwell's love of nature and how this love informed and shaped his writing and his views. But it also, as readers would expect from Rebecca Solnit, one of the most innovative and engaging essayists of our age, gives rise to a rhizomatic exploration of the cultural significance of flowers, as well as to a meditation on the relationship between nature, aesthetics, politics and ecology. It takes us from California, to England, to the Soviet Union, to Catalonia, to Mexico, to the Isle of Jura, and even to the rose factories, yes, you heard that right, of Colombia. Orwell's Roses is no less than a conversation across time between two deeply compassionate, original and indignant minds on some of the most urgent issues of our age. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that Rebecca Solnit joins us today to discuss it. Rebecca, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: I just wish I was here in person.
0: Oh, so do we. So do we. Soon. We'll have you back here soon.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, can we begin with um, with your relationship with George Orwell uh, before you started researching and writing and having the idea for this book? Because at a moment during Orwell's Roses, you say that he had been one of your principal literary influences. Um, could you just talk a little bit about in what way he had influenced you? up to the point when you began work on this book and what exactly was it that proved the the turning point that meant that you had to write about him now
1: yeah i you know there are millions of orwell books still sloshing about the world so i read animal farm when i was so young i really thought it was about animals because i <laughs> didn't know about allegories let alone the soviet union and stalinism <laughs> i read 1984 and a couple of the other novels when I was young. But I bought a big omnibus anthology of his work, probably around 20 or 21. And that's when I began reading his essays. And it was just as I was beginning to recognize that my long term plan to be a writer was narrowing into being essentially an essayist, Mm -hmm. And so he was really modeling for me what an essay can do, what forms it can take, how they work, what kinds of power they have. And his clarity was wonderful. People sometimes talk about him as somebody who's not a beautiful writer Mm. and he doesn't have bells and whistles and frills and ornaments. (laughs) But he has the beauty of clarity and, you know, and directness of approaching something, of daring to think through something big and uh, reframe it in some original way. So I learned so much about what an essayist can be as I was just becoming one. And then, of course, the politics of the work as well were mm-hmm. so important for me. So he, along with half a handful of other writers, Virginia Woolf, Henry David Thoreau, Borges, Later, Subcomunante Marcos, because Mm -hmm. of the Zapatistas, Poetic Manifestos, you know, became one of the real sort of, you know, residents of my pantheon for style and for content. And I think even more for that, for a kind of moral commitment or Mm. quality of vision onto the world. Mm. And then, of course, this book comes from a conversation that turned into an adventure where i went looking for one thing and found another my close friend sam green had long thought he might make a documentary film or some other project about trees and we both loved trees and would send back emails back and forth with interesting bits of ideas and images of trees and science uh you know stories etc And one day we were talking about trees planted by notable people. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned because of one of those Orwell essays I fell in love with in the big Orwell anthology I had grown to know so well when I was so young that Orwell had planted fruit trees. He writes about them in the essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, about planting fruit trees and roses in 1936, coming back a decade later, seeing they were still flourishing and thinking about what contributions you might make to posterity by planting something with a long lifespan and how it might outlive anything else you do, Mm -hmm. which will not be the case with Orwell, of course, but might be for most of us who might plant an apple tree, a walnut, you know, a sequoia, Mm -hmm. an oak. And so Sam was excited and said, well, are they still growing these fruit trees? And I did a quick search, figured out where he lived, looked on Google Earth and saw vague green blobs, which could have been <laughs> any kind of tree. So Sam wrote a letter to the address. And then when I was on my way to talk to Rob McFarlane in Cambridge on book tour, I got off the train in Baldock, the nearest train station and took a taxi to the house and, uh, The owner greeted me and invited me in, much to my delight. I thought I might be rebuffed because when you live in a famous person's (laughs) home, there might be a lot of traffic. They'd gotten Sam's letter and said, oh, the fruit trees have been cut down, but we had tea. We visited what might be the stumps. Mm -hmm. We met Nigel next door, who remembered the fruit trees, which lived until the 1990s, more than 40 years after Orwell died. And then very casually they said, oh, but the roses or well-planted are still growing. Would you like Mm -hmm. to see them? And that was the genesis of this book. Yeah. There was two shocks for me, one of which was this direct living connection to somebody who felt so completely gone to me. You know, here was something living that had known this living man. He was suddenly so much closer than I'd Mm. ever expected him to be. And the other thing was, I'd known that essay for 40 years almost, but I'd never really thought, what did it mean that this great socialist, this great anti-fascist, this person always described as kind of austere and grim and pessimistic in a rather manly way, mm-hmm. had been a planter and tender and lover of roses. It felt like that opened up so many questions, not just about who Orwell was, but who an anti-fascist, a dedicated person, a political person could be, and that would let me explore so many things about our relationship to the natural world, about what it means to live a life of commitment, about where pleasure and joy and beauty fit in, about the powers of the plant kingdom in -hmm. an age of climate crisis and so much more. And so yeah. I was off and running almost as soon as I met <laughs> the roses, which on that November day, Day of the Dead 2017, were blooming beautifully.
0: Hmm. Um, to, to talk a, a little bit about uh, the roses particularly in a minute, but I'm I'm really interested in your interest in trees or yours and Sam's interest in trees, because it seems to be something which is very much maybe of the zeitgeist is not perhaps the right word but um i've done several interviews over the past few years uh, for example with novelists like uh, elif shafak and richard powers um and have read uh, quite a few non-fiction books that all of which deal with trees in some way. So in um, The Overstory by Richard Powers, the book is kind of written on tree time in a way. Elif Shafak has a tree as a narrator to her most recent book. Um, And I'm curious to hear what you think is the reason for this, that that the the trees have become in the last few years um, a subject of interest, particularly to, to writers.
1: I quote a beautiful passage by Man Ray, the surrealist photographer, where he says that during the second world war, he wished he could be turned into a tree and talks about then come, you know, as a refugee in California, standing under the sequoias and, you know, just feeling that deep time. I think because we live in a time of instability, of turmoil, Mm. of uncertainty the sheer longevity of trees and their stability. You know, they don't rush around. They stay in one place, of course. Mm. You know, there's some kind of reassurance about them. They feel like witnesses of deep time. They invite us into a different time frame than our mortal lives. I found the word saeculum, which I mm. might be mispronouncing, very powerful for thinking about what it was Sam and I loved about trees. You know, it's an Etruscan word. For the longest time, something is in living memory, usually about 100 years, you know, mm-hmm. the last person to fight in the Spanish Civil War or to remember that war, the last person, you know, who was alive when something happened, you know, Victoria's age or, you know, when mm-hmm. a poet was alive or we did things some way or this country existed or something and trees invite you into a whole different saculum. and i'm here in california where the bristlecones live 5000 years mm-hmm. the redwoods live 2000 years and in colorado there's a cluster of aspens said to be i think 40,000 years old so you know there's maybe it's 20,000 but it's a while mm-hmm. so i think it's that sense of stability and time that's almost a reassurance a connection to a bigger time frame that takes us out of the the petty, squabbling turbulence of our own moment in mm-hmm. time. But also, I think in the age of climate chaos, trees are almost like gods. And mm-hmm. One of the things that was such a joy to weave into this book, because I believe everything should be about climate in the time of of chaos is what plants really are plants Mm -hmm. made this world first the you know first the little organisms in the ocean put the oxygen into the atmosphere that made the beginnings of the modern atmosphere but plants sequestered carbon so much they created all the fossil fuel we're now extracting which is the buried carbon sequestered by plants so you can consider burning fossil fuel a kind of destruction of what plants created, which is, you know, the all this buried carbon in the modern atmosphere. And trees are still sequestering, I think, two-fifths, or plants, I should say, including trees, grasslands, mm-hmm. et cetera, sequestering about two-fifths of the carbon we put out every year. So there are these tremendously powerful agents in the world. We often treat the natural world and plants as kind of passive and static, uh, all those years when people made nature feminine, it was a passive nature some, that was often virgin and
0: mm-hmm.
1: voluptuous that someone was going to conquer. I even think of the surrealist portraying the Seine, your river as this kind of woman lying with her legs spread.
0: Of course. And
1: uh, <laughs> you know, there's a famous <laughs> painting to that effect. And, uh, you know, but nature is very powerful and active, and at best mm. we collaborate with it, at yeah. worst, we war with it. So I think we're also very conscious right now that our survival has always depended on nature. Mm-hmm. Even though when I was young, we talked about culture and nature as two almost equal spheres and as though you could be in culture without being in nature, we mm-hmm. now know to be a living organism is to be in the biosphere, to be in the world mm-hmm. made by living things to be a living thing among living things and dependent on it, and that human beings have only stepped out to the extent of devastating and undermining the stability Mm. of that. So I think trees stand as these dreams of steadiness, as these kind of nurturing deities, these giants um, we can go to for refuge, and, you know, that would be my take off the top mm-hmm. of my head on why trees so much. And yeah, and and even the nature of what trees are is changing with books like Suzanne Simard's wonderful book this year, Finding the Mother Tree, mm-hmm. which is part of a great project of understanding the natural and psychic world is much more communal and collective and collaborative mm-hmm. than the lonely, isolated world of individualism, capitalism, and social Darwinism that was the norm in western mm-hmm. society's philosophies for the last 100 years
0: and i think one of the things that um uh, i loved most about uh, Orwell's roses as well is the sort of the the sort of structural structural inspiration you take from nature so i used the word which was a word that you use in the book and that you borrow from deleuze and guattari the the rhizomatic um approach mm-hmm. To the book, which um, it's funny. A few weeks ago, I was recording a conversation with um, Philip Hoare, um, the writer, uh, particularly of the, of the oceans, actually, and of, of whales, and and um, you know, one of one of I think Britain's great sort of nonfiction writers. And I was grasping for a way to describe his approach, actually, and when I when I saw the the description of rhizomatic, it seemed to it seemed to fit with uh, a certain way of approaching books and a way of thinking about um, about things, which applied uh, to his work as much as I think to to All Roses, which is sort of a non uh, hierarchical approach. So when you read Orwell's Roses, what you don't have is a straightforward narrative of Orwell's life. You don't have a um, a sort of an argument constructed from A in chapter one to Z in chapter 25, but rather a kind of a sprawling meditation on, uh, the, the effect of roses on Orwell, the effect of Orwell on you, the effect of roses on you. And, um, and yeah, it just felt like a, almost a sort of a perfect collaboration in a way between you and nature to have the the structure of this book.
1: You know, and of course it's much more about roses and me. It's really, a, you know, Rose, you know, I like to say that the roses are kind of, uh, point of entry for Orwell but Orwell's also a point of entry for the roses which means so many things of course they're one of the great symbols and um, you know treasures in the west the symbol you know they represent beauty and you know have both spiritual and erotic meanings but they also for Mm -hmm. me stood in both for flowering plants and the whole plant kingdom so that I could think Um, about all those places that roses led. But yeah, the structure was in a way inevitable because I wasn't like a detective on the trail of one elusive Mm -hmm. meaning that I would, you know, track down and explode at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was looking at all the meanings that rise from this one remarkable thing. In the year 1936, a writer planted roses, that particular writer. And that question what did that mean what did the roses mean what did the gesture mean who was this person why was planting roses such a meaningful gesture for who he was who he was going to become Mm -hmm. what he cared about because he was an absolutely passionate gardener and as it turned out after I met those roses in November of nineteen seven i of twenty seventeen not <laughs> nineteen seventeen of um he was somebody whose passion for the natural world for gardening for plants for flowers for roses um hadn't really been taken into account very substantively in most of what's been written about mm. him. It's often treated as kind of an aside. And even though the address at Wallington was his home longer than any other place in his life, it's also often given short shrift while Spain and Jura and London Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Burma, where he was a policeman in the Imperial Service, are given um, more attention. They're kind of more dramatic, whereas this kind of bucolic backwater was actually where he became the George Orwell we know, Mm -hmm. the political writer, the great anti-fascist, the person who knew where he stood. And as it turns out, he stood on fertile soil, quite literally. That's where he chose to be. So the book had to go in many directions, but I thought of it as like spokes from a central hub Mm -hmm. of a circumambulation. When I wrote my book about walking more than 20 years ago, One of the things that I found really beautiful and meaningful for thinking about how we approach something was that, you know, Western mountaineering is about getting to the summit, a kind of symbolic conquest, often with some fetishism about who got there first. (laughs) A lot of Asian pilgrimage is a circumambulation. You don't Mm. even try to get to the top of the mountain. You circumambulate it, which is almost an embrace of the mountain Mm. and uh, seeing it from many vantage points. And I think that's actually how you try to understand something that's complex. Linear leaves so much out, you know, it's as though you're brushing everything aside. You're in a rush to get somewhere. Whereas a circumambulation I think is a thorough investigation of not one meaning, but the many meanings that might arise from something Mm -hmm. of the complex relationships And, uh, you know, and so this book is written as seven sections, each of which begin with a variation on that one opening sentence, you know, that goes to all the places about Englishness, about politics, about beauty, Mm -hmm. about the plant kingdom, often about parts of Orwell's own life and his own development as a writer And as a writer grounded in the natural world and in gardens and in um, this love of flowers and in his sense of what beauty was, beauty as language, as honesty and truth, as Mm -hmm. commitment, as well as beauty as, you know, the visual. So So, yeah, this book led me to many places. You listed some of the geographical ones. And it led me into a wonderfully deeper understanding of Orwell. I love writing, in part because I think much harder, research much more deeply than I would otherwise, mm-hmm. and then I just tried to bring all that to the reader so they can yeah. travel with me on the exploration.
0: Do you? Um, you mentioned that um, this was a side of Orwell which was overlooked, and it's it's true that I haven't ever come across. Um, Orwell's interest in nature, given such um, such prominence in writing about him. Do you think that's in part because when Orwell became well known, when the sort of the, the narrative of Orwell was set, if you like, um, as you write in the book, landscape was considered almost as a separate thing from politics, like the, the idea that Politics and gardening, and, and politics and nature, could be connected, was so alien to the world of the 30s and 40s when Orwell was writing that almost this this thing that, would, as you discuss, is so important to understanding um, how he worked and how he thought, people just had a blind spot to it.
1: You know, I think there's a few aspects to it. There's a there's a poem I quote by Bertolt Brecht. What kind of a time what what times are these when to talk about trees is almost a crime and what brecht is saying is trees are utterly outside the politics of the 1930s Mm -hmm. which isn't even true in the 1930s because of course the germans are using forests as a symbol of the teutonic soul and germanness as part of their you know their white supremacist Mm -hmm. nazi cult and nature is often used in very sinister ways which i wanted to make clear in the book but um I think that part of it was that in that era, people thought nature was apolitical beyond the Mm -hmm. political, which was wrong in their time and extremely wrong in ours, where the most important crises in many ways are crises around nature, including the biggest of them all, the climate crisis, which is a crisis with its roots in how we think about nature how we fail to think about nature, our alienation, disconnection, metaphors of conquest, short-sightedness, irresponsibility. But then also, I think that the people who wrote about Orwell, who were mostly men, wanted to make the case that Orwell was a very important and thereby very manly man.
0: Mm. And
1: in that era, that meant stern, austere, cerebral, etc. And it was really a time in which people didn't pay much as nearly as much attention to personal and private life and thinking about themselves and thinking about others the great feminist declaration that the personal is political would come at the end of the 1960s and give us some other ways to think about how our values manifest in public and private how those things connect etc so for me orwell as a gardener told us a lot about who he was, um, opens up the fact that everything he wrote just about has traces of this interest in the natural world. There's a lot of, even in his grimmest early novels, there's these jarringly lush and really joyous descriptions of the Mm. natural world. And what was so exciting for me is that as someone who had read 1984... 1984 many times and thought I knew it well is that looking at Orwell the gardener, looking at his love of the natural world, looking at what that opened up to me, which is that he's actually a person who enjoyed himself a lot more than anybody ever said a person who took pleasure in daily life, who was actually not so pessimistic who, because he planted trees, had some hope for the future, Mm -hmm. who even as he was dying was planting things that would outlive him. So I went back to 1984 and found that the book was more hopeful, more celebratory, more full of the life of the senses and the natural world and beauty than I had ever realized. Mm -hmm. My sense of what this book was and who this man was had prevented me from seeing these things. And the new The new sense of Orwell let me find a completely different 1984. And that was such a thrill with that sense of discovery of seeing what you've never seen before. Mm. And that's kind of where the book ends. It's mildly chronological, I could say, in Mm. that Orwell himself changes and grows a lot, becoming a much better human being and a much better writer, the much deeper sense of who he is, and what matters Mm -hmm. and that's all there in the end in 1984 and in a book where Winston Smith's resistance to big brother to totalitarianism doesn't consist of trying to overthrow the regime except later in one tragic attempt to join up a rebellion that turns Mm -hmm. out to be a trap that leads him to his destruction but his rebellion consists of living fully and deeply, of trusting his own senses and memory. Um, there's a wonderful, terrible sentence in there that says, the final command of the party was not to trust the evidence of your eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. Something that almost sounds familiar from what Trump told, his, told us right. and his followers obeyed. And so you invert that and to trust the evidence of your eyes and ears is to form the robust self who can stand against propaganda, lies, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. And Winston does that with a passionate love affair, with paying attention. And the book opens with Winston writing in a journal he's bought, luxuriating in the sensuality of the creamy old paper they don't make anymore, Mm -hmm. of the pleasures of putting an ink pen to paper, of the power of expressing his thought and maybe communicating to posterity, the hopefulness of that. It goes on through the beauty of a glass paperweight with a bit of coral in it, the memory of a nursery rhyme, Mm -hmm. the journey to the golden country, just this very quotidian English landscape, but that is still extraordinarily beautiful. Um, The joy of listening to a bird sing for the beauty of singing Mm -hmm. for its own sake, And then I think that pivotal moment for the book is three times he sees a stout, coarse, cockney washerwoman hanging out diapers on a clothesline, and he sees her first as a goddess who might have been doing that for a thousand years, who might have a saculum that Mm. goes back, (laughs) you know, almost to the Norman conquest long before Big Brother and atomic bombs and all this business and who might be there for a thousand years so she's really a this incredibly powerful figure she's singing in a beautiful voice a sentimental song the diapers for, as i read it represent the future the singing about love represents the emotions you're not really supposed to have an attachment to the past and memory so she's really this figure of resistance and Though people often read the novel as though Winston's failure is everyone's failure, Winston himself keeps saying, if there's hope, it lies with the Mm proles. And here's the prole who is hope. And at the very end, just before the thought police come to take him away and destroy him, he sees her one last time and thinks... That she's beautiful. And it feels like a breakthrough for Orwell as well mm-hmm. as for Winston Smith, his character, to see the stout middle-aged woman thickened, they say, through childbearing, is beautiful. And he thinks, why should the rose hip be held inferior to the rose? Mm-hmm. And that was shocking to me. Ah. The central, the pivotal moment in 1984 is driven home by a metaphor of a rose. And this is something I've been passionate about for decades. We not only get from the natural world the very terms of our survival and our sustenance, not only the spiritual stuff a lot of people have talked about, but we get the metaphors by which we navigate Mm -hmm. everything, the the spatial metaphors, the bodily metaphors, the agricultural metaphors, all that reaping and sowing and the metaphors from animals and plants and seasons and weather. And so here's Orwell deploying a metaphor he probably was, you know, you know, collecting as a gardener, rose hips and roses, and, you know, as a way of rethinking beauty. Mm-hmm. And there it is right at the heart of 1984.
0: And, and that's something which, um, which is really striking, um, that... This 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 interest in beauty, this interest in the 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 lushness of um, of the natural world, of the beauty of uh, of human beings, in the case of of the washerwoman, because I think it's something which, in political discussions, is so often overlooked, and unfortunately, um, I think uh, on the on the left, perhaps even more than on the right, because it's sort of, sometimes discussions of beauty are considered. Decadent or a distraction. I mean, there's one letter that you um, that you quote that somebody wrote to, to Orwell, uh, where he says, "Last time I mentioned flowers in this column, an indignant lady wrote to say that flowers are bourgeois," which is such a it's 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 such a um, striking kind of uh, representation of how some, the natural world can be co opted and sort of imbued with a political meaning which which it doesn't have, um, and one of the sort of central discussions in the book is around this idea of Bread and Roses. Now, I I will confess my heart leapt when I saw this because um, when I lived in London almost um, 20 years ago now, I was in uh, the neighbourhood of Clapham where my local pub was called the Bread and Roses. Um, And it was operated by the Workers' Beer Company. And um, when you went in, this was the first time I'd come into contact contact with this concept and above the the bar painted on the wall was this line from the song our life shall not be sweated from birth until life closes hearts starve as well as bodies bread and roses bread and roses and even saying it now every time I come across it I get tingles because it seems to it seems to connect with something which is so often overlooked in Leftist politics in radical politics, in, in where in what I consider broadly my political home, and it's so inspiring to find um, to find this concept represented and discussed at length in uh, in your book.
1: It was so thrilling for me, and I've known the phrase "bread and roses" forever, and never thought very hard about it because it was never really unpacked. And here in the Bay Area is the organization Bread and Roses that brings. Music Institutions from Prisons to Hospitals, founded by Mimi Farina, Joan Baez's sister, Mm. and they sang the poem Bread and Roses by James Oppenheim that was written in 1911. But so I went back to try and find the very origins of the phrase, and I believe I have, a wonderful woman campaigning for women's voting rights in southern Illinois in the United States in 1910, gave a talk talking about what woman could bring about if we were given the vote. And, uh, and she's used a more or less a phrase, the phrase bread and roses. She was staying on a farm that belonged to an elderly woman and her daughter that also had, you know, uh, employee, a servant living there, a farm woman. And the next morning at breakfast, the, you know, the servant Maggie said, I love what you said, especially the part about bread and flowers Too, the f- daughter of the old woman asked for uh, Helen Todd to send a pillow to her mother embroidered with the phrase bread, bread and roses too. And somehow that cat, this, you know, this group of this little gathering of women catalyzed the phrase out of the speech into bread and roses. And then James Oppenheim wrote his poem. But, uh, you know, Helen Todd wrote about her tour and declared what bread and roses meant. And it is actually a radical exploding of the utilitarianism, the kind of dreary... Um practicality of what the left so often thinks it means to be human Mm -hmm. when they think about what human beings want need deserve bread is what we always talk about which is the basic sustenance of life um, food clothing shelter but roses roses meant pleasure beauty culture nature and which also meant the freedom and independence and maybe the privacy and in which to decide what those things were going to be because we might all need more or less the same food, clothing, and shelter, but we need what we need to sustain our spirits is really going to vary. You know, you might be into singing and camping. I might be into, you know, swimming and gardening and, you know, in some kind and baking, you know, you might, you know, that, that these things vary wildly. And so we have to let people have some kind of self-determination and that's actually something Orwell is very passionate about Mm -hmm. privacy as something central to freedom in which you can lead your own life without authorities and interference. And, um, you know and, in, and the and the varieties of pleasures and of course he's actually a great tally up of pleasures including his own just mm-hmm. before 1984 he writes this group of essays about pleasure about english cooking and food about junk shops about the ideal pub and about how to make a proper cup of tea and um you know about good bad books and um he writes the essay the uh, good word for the vicar of bray which luxuriates in songs and trees and meditations on the longevity of trees and how the planting of a tree will outlive any other gesture you know he actually finds in the junk shops Mm -hmm. the um glass paperweights with a bit of coral in them that will become a central emblem in 1984. So all this was exciting to me partly because the left is, as you say, very austere and is often telling you this is frivolous, this is bourgeois, this is superfluous and unnecessary. And Orwell, who is such a totemic leftist and therefore unassailable in the way almost none of the rest of us are, (laughs) if he's making that case and the case is that much more fierce and strong mm-hmm. and hard to knock down you nobody doubts that orwell was serious and committed and yet there he is he dies with a fishing pole in his hospital room mm-hmm. because he's hoping to live a little longer, go to a sanitarium, maybe recover and get some fishing in. You know, even as he's writing 1984, he's keeping an almost daily journal Mm -hmm. about what he's doing in the garden. You know, when he fights in the Spanish Civil War, he's noticing the stench of the trenches, the betrayal of Mm -hmm. the communists aligned with the Soviet Union. But he's also noticing the beauties the beautiful idealism of the spanish anti-fascist the flowers in bloom the cherry trees and birds um while he's there at the front Mm -hmm. so yeah so bread and roses is an argument both for a more complex sense of what we need and a more complex sense of what it means to be human mm. and I think
0: also the um, it sort of feeds into that idea of the rhizome that we talked about and this sort of decentralization that yeah. uh, Orwell was always arguing for like it was uh, at a moment you write that he loathed the centralized authority and um you know in a sense a centralized authority can provide you know bread but the the roses it's something which is almost uh inherently resistant to to centralization to authority
1: yeah and there have been a lot of authoritarian regimes which do a decent job with the bread but usually want to prescribe what roses you can have mm-hmm. you know they end up killing or silencing uh poets and censor, you know censoring and restricting preventing freedom of movement you know regulating often sexuality whether it's preventing abortion or mandating abortion or, you know, criminalizing homosexuality, which, of course, lots of bourgeois capitalist regimes did, too, but that's mm-hmm. another story. So, yeah, so it's really an argument for a kind of decentralization um an anti-authoritarianism that leaves people to their own devices. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a very powerful argument. It was exciting to find it actually coming out of the women's suffrage movement at a time when the fight for women's votes and labor struggles were very closely aligned. And the labor movement took it up. Uh, Rose Schneiderman, the great labor organizer, was using it by 1912. And, um, you know, and it just spread and spread, but it's very easy to forget or never know um, what it really means and how radical it is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I would love to see it revived in our time.
0: Um, It's interesting. Earlier, you said that uh, the authoritarian regimes um, normally do pretty well with the bread. But one of the the chapters in the book, and this was a.
1: Sometimes do pretty well. Not not always normally. There's lots of regimes we can look at now in which lots of people are starving and desperate mm. you and know. you write about
0: um in the soviet union um, um a, a, a part of the history that i was unaware of actually um um the the work of um lysenko if i'm pronouncing that correctly and the um, and his attempt to essentially uh, sort of mould nature to Stalin's whims or to man's whims, and the ultimate failure. And one thing I found particularly interesting about that was the um, uh, the fact that uh, Orwell pasted uh, into his journal uh, a, a quote from Lysenko saying wheat can become rye, um, and it just it's it's that sort of that battling again with um, with objective truth and finding that sort of ultimately in situations like that nature will out
1: absolutely yeah and it was a newspaper headline lysenko was an opportunist and a bogus scientist Mm -hmm. um who was very good at getting stalin to support him and to turn on all the people doing real science stalin was anti-darwinist because in that era Darwinism was thought to be inevitably social Darwinism, which Mm -hmm. was used to justify white supremacy, but also the class structure, you know, as if white people and upper class people were superior to, you know, non-white and working class people, which science does not actually ever say. (laughs) And, but also I think what Stalin wanted was a nature that you could brutalize into obedience Darwinism suggests that change happens through uh, natural selection, which you can manipulate, but it's still slow and complex and resistant, whereas Lysenko was promising a kind of Lamarckism, which Stalin was already aligned with, that you can force plants to change And then those characteristics can be inherited. So you can essentially bully the natural world. And Stalin, I was delighted to find, attempted to bully lemon trees into growing (laughs) in some of the Soviet Union's cold climates. I don't know how those experiments went. I picture his gardeners, like the gardeners in Alice in Wonderland, who are frantically painting white rose bushes red, lest the queen Chop off their heads. So I picture Stalin's gardeners swapping out lemons from greenhouses to look like he's succeeding in forcing them to grow in the cold. But Lysenko helped produce the tragedies of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, the mass starvation, the failed agricultural projects, which were about the triumph of ideology over real empiricism. You know, scientists committed suicide, were sent to gulags. The great agronomist uh, Vavilov, who was Lysenko's principal enemy, who did so much to try and solve world hunger and Russian hunger through his work, gathering seeds and new strains, uh, you know, and old strains of plants, building the great seed bank in um, St. Petersburg, Leningrad, himself starved to death in the gulag because Lysenko was able to get to turn him into, you know, an enemy of the regime. So, yeah, and uh, that was actually one of the inspirations for 1984 was Mm Orwell's um, learning about all this through a talk given by a scientist at a Freedom of Expression Symposium in 1944. I thought it was quite striking that some of the origins of 1984, the novel, are in... You know, agricultural, um, scientific, botanical uh, controversies and good and bad science, Mm -hmm. the manipulation of truth as it relates to agriculture and the plant kingdom. And again, that's evidence that despite what Bertolt Brecht and others said, the world of plants um, and the natural world was deeply, deeply political Mm -hmm. in their time as it is in ours.
0: Yeah. And indeed, uh, you used the phrase um, a moment ago uh, that Stalin wanted to manipulate nature into obedience. Um, and now p- people may be listening to this conversation and be sort of inspired by the idea of of roses and their beauty and maybe thinking of going out and buying a bouquet right now. But one of the most striking and shocking um, chapters in the book is when you visit Colombia and the rose Factories, essentially, um, that exist there, which was something I was utterly unaware of um, before. Before reading this, and it, and again, it's a sort of it's from the I guess the other side of the ideological fence. It's capitalism, uh, essentially, trying to manipulate nature into into obedience, um, and and yeah, and in the process, making um, not only making a lot of people's lives very difficult and, and a misery, but also. Uh, as as you point out sort of um depleting the water resources of a of a sort of an already uh, troubled country
1: yeah uh 90% of all the roses sold in the united states come from colombia and just as a huge num- huge percent of the cut flowers sold in europe uh come from i think kenya and maybe Ethiopia, mm-hmm. you know, grown in huge greenhouses, flown in airplanes, um, you know, underpaid labor. I don't know much about it in Africa, but I now know quite a lot about it in Colombia. I'd actually known that roses were grown in barbaric conditions um before I even became so interested in Orwell's roses. And for me, they represented something we deal with or fail to deal with all the time in the industrialized contemporary world, which is that so often something that's aesthetically pleasing is ethically monstrous. Mm-hmm. And so much of the work that human rights activists and environmental activists are trying to do is to get us to see beyond, you know, what's immediately around us to see that these clothes are made in sweatshops in Asia, that this food is grown in, you know, environmentally destructive conditions, that this fish comes from overfishing the ocean and, you know, killing lots of bycatch. And, uh, you know, um, this is prison labor, et cetera. So it was quite quite an invitation to actually go to Columbia with the help of my friend Nate Miller and actually see how roses were produced through some miracle of me seeming like a nice middle-aged white lady who was <laughs> writing a book about roses, all of which is pretty much true, but a very political book about roses. Um, we got into the greenhouses nobody ever gets into, so I have seen for- firsthand these Just these industrial agriculture plantations, you know, football field size, greenhouse after greenhouse with the roses growing in long rows that almost go to the vanishing point. Mm. Exploited workers, um, you know, the industry is the largest employer of women in Colombia, not allowed to unionize, forced to engage in repetitive stress jobs that will give many of them... Permanent dis- disabling uh, injuries after which they're basically just thrown out, and more teenagers are hired to go through the same process. You know, forced often to work 100 hours a week before Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, so Americans can buy lots of bouquets to send out. And one of the things that was really shocking is, you know, it's all, and it's really a rose factory, um, you know, or a rose sweatshop, was to, you know, there's the cold mm-hmm. rooms. Because you want to keep the roses cold to extend their life after they're cut, in which the workers work and the place I went they had these slogans you could call or and these cheerful slogans that were what the employers wanted them to think clearly not what the mm-hmm. workers themselves would say <laughs> so they all had to walk around as little billboards for lies essentially mm-hmm. you know lies and pretends and euphemisms mm-hmm. and bullshit but you know they plant pack the roses three hundred to a box, and um you know and stuff a seven forty seven uh full of these boxes and so over the ocean from Bogota to Miami, every day are seven forty sevens each carrying one point six million roses. There is nothing more alienated I can imagine than a seven forty seven full of roses traveling from one continent to another
0: Mm. and those
1: are the roses you get in your supermarkets and most of your florists and things as a Californian I can actually buy rose you know locally grown flowers at the farmer's market and that's where all the flowers I buy do but it really allowed me to explore both how alienated something can be you know the American florists used to have this little slogan say it with flowers Mm. but what if you really listen to your flowers and they said You know, fossil fuel, toxicity, pesticides, um, exploitation, disempowerment, birth defects. You know, that's what these roses would say if they could really talk Mm -hmm. about the conditions of their production.
0: Yeah.
1: And so they make a very odd symbol of love and beauty. Mm -hmm. And Orwell himself, I think, was actually, you know, the, the question of what Orwell thought was beautiful You know, became a really interesting question that these helped me explore. And part of what he was interested in as beautiful was integrity, integrity in in human conduct and an integrity of language, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a social integrity, a society that wasn't based on lies, a government accountable to its people um you you know and there's a sense in which these roses lack integrity they pretend to be one thing mm-hmm. when they're another they hide the conditions of their production yeah and so integrity versus this sort of disintegration became a real theme of the book yeah
0: that um that image of course of the the sort of contemporary world we're living in is is quite um Grim, quite uh quite overwhelming and quite um quite quite disgusting um and uh we are almost out of time and i don't want to leave uh the conversation uh on that image as important as it is but for the reason that as you alluded to earlier um orwell there's a certain sense of hope in orwell um you use the expression, um, about his, his gardening, that it's on, on the side of the, uh, of the future. Um, and I think that's something which is, again, alongside, I guess, the, uh, the concept of nature and very much connected to it that is overlooked in Orwell is that sense of hope. Now you, you write, um, about the, uh, What Margaret Atwood wrote about the 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 end of 1984, which um, it's it's something which which could be um, could be missed in a way with a quick reading, but that actually uh, there's the implication that the the regime uh, under which Winston Smith lives has has fallen, and um, and although you know the 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 term Orwellian is often used to almost represent something inextricably Paralyzing for um for, for 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 political actors. In fact, in in Orwell, that's not quite uh, that's not quite uh, the whole truth.
1: Yeah, the epigraph of the book comes from the great science fiction writer Octavia Butler. Mm. It's often seen as one of Orwell's heirs for being both a portrayer of dystopias and somebody who's stubbornly hopeful or at least portraying people trying to cope, resist, make a better world, even in the bleakest situations. But she wrote an essay that gave me the epigraph. The very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. And that Mm. felt so much like what Orwell was trying to do. And so for me, his hope comes through in a number of ways. He's issues a lot of warnings later in his life about authoritarianism, totalitarianism, you know, bourgeois democracies in which people are also using euphemisms and circumlocutions to countenance atrocities. But Orwell in planting trees that he imagines may live into the 21st century when he plants them in the 1930s and 1940s and planting and tending a garden, even as he's dying in that fishing pole in his last Mm -hmm. hospital room. But also in 1984 and looking at these seeds of resistance, uh, you know, I think is hopeful in some way, but I also think it's in his nature. You know, he lives through the, the Spanish civil war through his own, Illness, and he spends most of his adult life being a person who is not healthy, who has many lung complaints, and ultimately the tuberculosis that would kill him. And I think that when you have it, when you're seriously ill, or you have something really in peril, you know, bring about about your sense of mortality. Whether it's a serious accident or a serious illness, you can either just feel terrified by your fragility or mortality, or you can decide to live more intensely. Mm. I've seen a lot of people decide not to waste any more time because they've, they've got a cancer diagnosis and Orwell feels like that, that there's no time to waste. He's going to seize the joys. He's going to live as fully as possible, which often means driving himself hard until he collapses, you know, and often convalescing for weeks or months at home or in a sanatorium or hospital, and then getting up and doing it again. So there's a kind of stubbornness about him that I found so admirable. But the other thing that Margaret Atwood pointed to in 1984 is that 1984 has an appendix, and it's appendix written in ordinary English about Newspeak, the language that they're trying to force upon everybody in the novel and Atwood's reading is that the appendix tells us that that regime was not eternal, that there is not long afterwards an aftermath in which people can write in ordinary English about what the regime tried to do in the past mm-hmm. tense. And she borrowed that in The Handmaid's Tale to write me. her own appendix that does exactly the same thing tells you that the terrible regime was not permanent. Uh, without telling you exactly how it collapsed. Although, of course, in her more recent novel, she does start to hint at more <laughs> about how it will collapse. So, yeah, so I think Orwell is not an optimist, which I always write about, you know, in Hope in the Dark and elsewhere. Somebody mm-hmm. thinks everything will be fine no matter what so we can be passive. But he's also not a pessimist who thinks that everything is going to hell and there's nothing we can do about it which also justifies inactivity. I think he's grim, you know, he's carefully, realistically hopeful, not that everything will be fine, not that, you know, we can sit back, but that there are things worth fighting for, and there will always be things worth fighting for, that things can change for the worse, and in many ways they have, that in some ways they may be able to change for the better, And it's worth throwing yourself into, trying to make that happen, trying to make that possible. And he did himself. So much of what this book is about for me is looking at Orwell as somebody who lived through a nightmarish time that made huge demands on people. And looking at how he did it, which is turning himself into a great voice for human rights, against authoritarianism, propaganda lies, etc. But also pacing himself with his gardens, his beer, his perfect cup of tea, his love of junk Hmm. shops, um, his celebration of nursery rhymes and fairy tales and 19th century American children's books of somebody who's really pacing himself and taking pleasure and celebrating. Also, I think it's very political. It's a very political position ordinary pleasures pleasures that are available to most people not you know my my super luxurious expensive obscure thing but just you know bird song the beautiful mm. eyes of toads just coming out of hibernation at um you know ordinary english food um common common ordinary things and uh, so he, i think there's a it's not written in the kind of oratorical tones of his most stern pronouncements about the things he was against. But I think there's real power in what he was for. And it gives us something that will help us all participate in the urgent crises of our times, but also pace ourselves and never forget what we're for. Because the Orwell we had always been given was the Orwell... And what he was against. But this is a book about Orwell and what he was for that made me realize if you lose sight of what you're for, you can become lost. You can become a mirror image of what you're against. You can become destructive in many ways. You know, you can become one of those bitter people who actually sabotages the movements you're part of. And so that's part of what I feel like I learned from looking at how Orwell lived his life and told us about what matters
0: well that feels like the perfect place to leave it Uh, always rose is such an extraordinary book um, available from shakespeare and company we have piles of it in stock Um, it's available from our online store as well of course shakespeareandcompany.com or your local neighborhood independent bookstore wherever that may be Um, all that's left for me to say is rebecca solnit thank you so so much for joining us today
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure. And thank you for such insightful questions.
0: Oh, it's it's my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Freiman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.